This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is In the Workplace on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here are Professor Peter Capelli and Dan O'Mara. Hey, folks. Welcome back. I'm Peter Capelli. I'm Dan O'Meara. I'm a professor of management here at the Warden School. And I'm a partner at Ogletree Deacons in Philadelphia. And this is a show where we talk about things uh, that go on at work, both the everyday stuff that happens in offices and plants and the stuff that goes on in public policy. We make human resources fun. Well, possibly you do. Yeah, I do. Uh, It is a big, big, big hurdle to make it fun, but it is nevertheless interesting. And today, of course... Uh, is one of those days, there's a little, in the Northeast, a little nip in the air. The snow is coming down, and everybody up and down the East Coast is saying, why the heck aren't we living in Florida? And honey, can you get us a flight to Cancun? I told you we should have bought the condo there. It's miserable here on the East Coast. And an interesting question is, if you don't show up for work on a day when the weather is miserable... But uh, the employer has not canceled because very few employers are closed. Yeah, they don't close. What happens to you? What do you think? Sounds like an unexcused absence to me, Mm. or maybe an excused absence. So it's paid time off uh, day for people. Or do you think if you are non-exempt, if you are an hourly employee, for example, it would be unpaid. Unpaid. You don't show up for work. Yeah, you don't get and and the office wasn't closed. You don't get paid, or you have to exhaust. (laughs) A personal day, a, a something day, vacation yeah. day. Even when the weather is really yucky as it is today. Right. In yeah. the scenario you gave where the, the employer office is open. Yeah. yeah, office is open. Uh, now, if you're an employer, does that put any burden on you to not be ridiculous about this and not expect people to come in even when the – as long as public transport is running, should they – It can. I, I'll tell yeah. you, in Philadelphia today, and, and frankly, it was not much of a snowstorm. Yeah, I remember when terrible. I was a kid, yeah. it had to be something really big to shut down school, like yeah. eight, eight fresh inches. Yeah. Like we had here in Philadelphia, we had, what, three inches? Was it was that much? I don't know. Um, in New Jersey, it was more towards the coast. Mm-hmm. Um, but – doesn't take much to shut us down now as opposed to 40 years ago. Yeah. We're not going to get into global warming, but it just doesn't Good snow as much. Yeah. Okay. But the decision is, do you close? Yeah. And right. and I suspect a whole lot of employers make the decision, will you close, based on whether the schools close. Oh, you think so? They're watching yeah. that? Yeah. Well, because right? people are like, uh, yeah, yeah, if my kids are home, maybe I ought to be I'd home be and home supervise too. them. Yeah. You might as well. Especially right? if they're like three or something yeah, like that. Yeah, no, that's right. Yeah. That's, a, that's a big problem. You have a snow day, it causes spillover effects all over yeah. the place. Yeah. I remember in uh, Berkeley, uh, this is years ago, maybe they still do this. You know what they did for International Working Women's Day? No, what? They closed the schools. Oh, wow. <laughs> so all the They working... don't work to show respect for women who do work. Okay. That's well, Berkeley. that all the women. That's Berkeley logic all the, for you. All the working women had to find uh, substitute child care, right, because their kids are now home, right? So it yeah. ended up being a huge pain. Oh, the, the schools closed. Yeah, that, the schools the, the closed. public schools. Okay. Yeah, yeah, right. So suddenly they had child care issues. Anyway, uh, we're going to move on to other sorts of topics today. We got a bunch of interesting things to talk about. A little later in the show, we're going to talk about Uber and uh, a new book that's come out about that, summarizing what's happened to that company and why it got into the problems it did. We're going to talk about the budget, a federal budget, and what sorts of things are changing there and how this might affect you, especially if you're an employer. 
And before that, we're going to talk about an interesting new book that uh, is not yet out, so this is a preview, uh, that thinks sort of a little differently about the workplace. And I should say, um, just as a preface to this, that I am wearing a full-body hazmat suit here. And the reason for this is I'm expecting Dan's head to explode sure. uh, at some point <laughs> during this conversation. Um, so with us to talk about this is Elizabeth Anderson, who's a professor of philosophy at the University of Michigan. The new book is called Private Government, How Employers Rule Our Lives and Why We Don't Talk About It. Elizabeth, welcome. It's great to be here. I do want to say that the book is out. Oh, it is? Okay. There you go. Yes, it's available for purchase. Ah, terrific. And who's your publisher? Princeton University Press. Okay, there you go. So uh, available on Amazon probably and yes. all kinds of other places. Or if you want to walk over to Princeton, uh, knock on the door over there. They probably <laughs> probably get it for you there too. So, Elizabeth, tell us um, – uh, we're going to get into this conversation, but let me see if I can set it up uh, a little bit. And that is uh, a lot of people take stuff for granted, including the way things operate uh, in their daily lives. And it seems to me one of the things you're doing in this book is you're asking people to not do that, uh, to think if we could take a few steps back and think about how some of these things in the workplace operate and what do we think about them. So let me ask you put it this way. If somebody was not familiar with the U.S. workplace, maybe they were from a different planet or maybe even a different country, what do you think would surprise them about what employers can do with employees here that they would find surprising and not in a good way? Yes. So the main point of my book is that we should think of the workplace as a little government in which the boss governs us while at work and often enough off-duty as well. And if the workplace is a government, we can ask, well, what is the constitution of that government? What kind of government is it? And my answer is it's a dictatorship for the most part, except in cases where you're represented by a labor union or part of a workers' cooperative. Those, those cases are not too common anymore in America. Uh, and so, well, what do dictators do? They are free to exercise arbitrary authority, not mm -hmm. just to hire and fire, but to harass workers in various ways as long as they're not discriminatory about it. Mm -hmm. They just harass everybody on an equal opportunity basis. You mm -hmm. have to suffer under that. In other countries like Germany, they have anti-mobbing laws that forbid harassment, even if it's non-discriminatory. Okay, so harassment here means... They're being jerks, what uh, we would right. socially describe as... Right, verbal abuse, yeah. just Abusive. general obnoxiousness. Right, right. Uh, so they can do that. Uh, and uh, let me suggest a couple of others. One that surprised me, and I've been around this topic for a long, long time, right, uh, is the extent to which employers can lean on, and some of them do in the corporate world, their executives to donate to political parties. I was really surprised by that. Uh, oh, yes. In fact, it's quite prevalent, and not just the executives, but middle management often gets pressure, and even line workers can be forced to attend political events in support of candidates that the boss wants. Mm -hmm. uh, there's enormous pressure sometimes to do that. Um, you know, I'm a public employee at a public university, so it's illegal for my boss to do that, but at private uh, employers, they're 
they have uh, pretty sweeping power to do that, and many people are quite uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Now, harassment, I think a lot of uh, li- listeners, particularly employers, would say, look, that's bad management, and uh, it's going to hurt you as an employer, and it's a mistake, and nobody's trying to do that, and nobody condones that. Um, what's your response to that? They would just say, you know, look, nobody's trying to be a bad employer. I mean, you know, trying to making people donate to political parties, for example, are doing that on purpose. But the corporation yeah. is probably not trying to harass people through their supervisors, right? So what, what would you say? Well, no doubt the elite business schools of this country are teaching their students proper HR management principles, and they know that the best way to motivate workers to do their best is not to harass and abuse them and be jerks. But there's an awful lot of businesses out there who haven't gone to Wharton or other elite schools, (laughs) and those bosses often like to exercise arbitrary power over their employees. Mm-hmm. Look at Harvey Weinstein. Right. He wasn't just sexually harassing. I mean, he would physically beat up his male employees. He was just an abuser, a big bully. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he was actually pretty successful if you look at his financial uh, outcomes. Yeah, prob- probably despite that, I think we would say, right? Uh, I, I don't think anybody... Yeah would suggest that this is really a recipe for succeeding in business, but... but I wouldn't say that, no. Yeah. Uh, but but some people are willing to take a financial hit in order to be bullies. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, what else would surprise people? Let's maybe get one or two others. So, uh, you know, you can... Uh, a lot of people are harassed at the workplace or abused by supervisors, and, you know, that is I think is the most shocking thing about mm-hmm. the American scene which I think is pretty much unheard of in uh, the EU, is that uh, bosses in uh, slaughterhouses forbid their workers from using the bathroom during the entire shift. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> that's pretty shocking. Hmm. In, in chicken slaughterhouses, the workers are told to show up in diapers. Um, imagine that. Hmm. It's incredibly humiliating um, to be forced to do that. And supposedly OSHA is, uh, requires bathrooms to be supplied to workers. It's a worker health issue as well as a dignity issue. Uh, and so the bathrooms exist, but they're locked. Mm-hmm. Nobody told them that workers had a right to use the bathroom. It just has to be there. Mm-hmm. So is the story here one about lack of political will to do anything about this? Is that... Uh... What? Oh, absolutely. Yep. And, and, of course, over the past few decades, workers have seen a steady deterioration in their bargaining power. Yep. So they're more vulnerable mm-hmm. uh, to this kind of abuse. Mm-hmm. So I think, t- tell me if I've got this, this story uh, right, that I think the heart of your story is that uh, abuse comes when there are power imbalances. And I suspect you'd say this is not unique to the workplace, but if you give one group of people power over another, like the Stanford prison experiments kind of stuff, you start to see abuses pretty quickly. And so the question is, why do we tolerate these kinds of abuses when we might not in other parts of society? Is that the story in a nutshell? Yes, exactly. Okay. And so, I think 
part of the reason for that is that we're bewitched by a kind of rhetoric of freedom and unfreedom, where we think that it's only the state that imposes arbitrary rules on us, when in fact the workplace is another kind of government where that happens as well. Mm, Okay. Let me ask you, uh, before we get into the nuts and bolts of this particular argument, you're a philosopher. Why did you pick up the workplace story? Because it's kind of different, right? There are lots of people who focus on the workplace, including me. (laughs) So, uh, and I'm not suggesting you're crowding my turf here. But uh, what interested you as a philosopher to get into this pretty practical, nitty-gritty topic about the workplace? Yeah. Well, I'm really interested in the history of free market thinking, uh, going back to Adam Smith and even before. And so reading very closely and deeply into the literature, even back to the 17th century, I discovered that a lot of early free market theorists had a model of how free market society would work, which promised that every worker would ultimately be able to become self-employed. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. And, well, if you're self-employed, you don't have a boss. You are your own boss, and so you have perfect freedom at work. That was the liberatory promise that Adam Smith, Thomas Paine, uh, all the way up to Abraham Lincoln, actually, uh, our great president, mm-hmm. he that was his campaign stump speech was all about how you open up the frontier, you give give away free capital in the form of farms out west with the Homestead Act. Everybody can be their own boss. Yep. That was the vision of freedom. It was really awesome. But the Industrial Revolution dashed all of those hopes because the most efficient unit of production is really a fairly large multi-employee structure right. where you have team production, and then you need some kind of governance of that workplace uh, to, to make it work mm-hmm. efficiently. Mm-hmm. So bosses are kind of needed. Mm-hmm. Um, but libertarian philosophy never really updated um, its theories to take seriously what these little governments of the workplace were looking like. Um, And so my critique is basically that these libertarian free market theorists are kind of blind to our current social Mm -hmm. reality. Mm -hmm. And that requires looking at what work really is like for many, many workers who suffer from all kinds of arbitrary rule. Mm -hmm. Now, Elizabeth, do you think employees should be able to elect their supervisors and elect the CEO? So I wouldn't quite go that far. (laughs) What I argue for in my book is something closer to what Germany pioneered, and that's what's known as co-determination. So on this model, workers and uh, representatives of capital owners jointly manage the firm. So I don't deny that the owners, the capital owners, those who invest their capital, are entitled to a share of governance. Uh, But I'd like to see a more cooperative model where workers also have a say and and get some of their dignity respected at work. Okay. Do you believe employees should fill out annual performance evaluations on their bosses or some type of performance review on their bosses just as their bosses do on them? Uh, You know, uh, I'm chair of my department, and I actually do uh, get performance reviews uh, at the hands of my colleagues. 
mm-hmm. and I issue such reviews of the deans and higher-ups in my university. Mm. It's actually pretty useful feedback. Of course, it's all anonymous, so I don't know, you know who's, who's reviewing me, and the deans don't know who's sending messages to them, but I've actually found that feedback to be Hmm. pretty useful. You know, in the private sector, there's a phrase for that called search and destroy missions, where you you try to figure out who wrote which comments. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And the reason they're anonymous, presumably, is to prevent retaliation by the department chairs against lower-level people. That is so cynical. Oh, my gosh. Okay, you guys go ahead. Like, why would they be anonymous if the employees weren't afraid of retaliation, okay? Mm -hmm. They wouldn't have to be anonymous. It could be more useful to to the department chair if they knew who is – what the different people were thinking, but they can't do that because of fears that the department chairs and the deans – would go on these so-called search-and-destroy missions, which I've never heard before, but you you seem to be quite knowledgeable about them. So I think, Dan, just Elizabeth, just so you you know what Dan is doing here so his head doesn't explode, Mm -hmm. because Dan is an employment-side management lawyer. Mm -hmm. Uh, What he's saying here is that academics were just as bad as everybody else, which I imagine uh, I would agree with. Oh, I think that's you know. not what I'm saying. I'm saying you're oh. worse than everybody else. Oh, we're worse. Okay. Have you ever you heard go. the phrase uh, there you go. academic <laughs> office politics? You have to take it seriously because there's so little at stake. Yeah, you know, I can even tell <laughs> you who said that. That was <laughs> Ernest Boyer, who was the chancellor of the New York. Uh, he was the region of the New York State uh, Education System. But okay, okay so I, I think back if, to your question, so, Peter. Well, yeah. So uh, Dan says we're worse than everybody else, but I think. That would actually just make Elizabeth's point that there's just something systematic about this, and that it's not just who the people are; uh, it's the context about power imbalance, human nature, et cetera. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, so, yeah, and let's keep in mind that seventy percent of, of workers who complain about sexual harassment face retaliation. Okay. Depending on what right. survey. Sure. Go ahead. Yeah, that's prob- probably right, too. Uh, but let's ask, Elizabeth, the other side of this, right? So the other side of this on the employer side, uh, and I know you understand these arguments, they would say uh, that uh, lots of other organizations and arrangements and relationships in society are voluntary, and that, for example, if you go into a restaurant, you don't have the right to vote on the chef, let's say, right? And you don't have the right when you join a club necessarily to uh, buy yourself any way to change the rules of the club. You know, they could be set independently of you. Not all clubs or organizations are democratically run. Mm -hmm. So what is unique about employment that makes this a special case or any, any different than any other relationship an individual might have in society? Right. So, first of all, I'd just like to point out that the Constitution of the Workplace is actually set by the state in a whole complicated set of employment laws and mm-hmm. laws regulating corporations and so forth. Um, and so, given that the state has granted pretty much untrammeled authority to the boss, we can ask why the state has organized things that way rather than a way that gives more voice okay. and dignity to work. Okay. Can I stop on that? Because that is a big point that, that uh, is important. And I think a lot of people would assume that the employment relationship, the way it exists, is something that's kind of natural, right? I mean, this is just the way yeah. things operate without any intervention. It looks like it does right now. And your point is, no, it's not, right? 
the state sets the baselines, this meaning the government, state and federal government, sets the baselines, and employers can change it from there, but the, the baselines are set by the state. Actually, all three of us agree on that. Okay, there's, yeah, there's one. Right. Mm-hmm. Sure. Good, there's one. Uh, and so uh, take it from there. So your point is uh, that is that different than other social relationships in society or economic relationships in society? The state also sets the baselines for other relationships, like marriage, for instance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, and we shouldn't necessarily say there's something wrong with that. Um, I think it's important for us to recognize that the law enables certain relationships to form by creating a legal infrastructure mm-hmm. for those forms. So it's not all coercion. Mm-hmm. But then you should look at the content of those default rules and see whether many people would be better off if you change the default rules and to have a more even balance of power. Mm -hmm. Folks, we're talking to Elizabeth Anderson, who's professor of philosophy at the University of Michigan, about her new book called Private Government, How Employers Rule Our Lives and Why We Don't Talk About It. We want to get to the why we don't talk about it here uh, in just a second. Uh, but if you look around the world, you seem to like the the German model because of code determination. Uh, but it sounds like uh, the real issue here is not the mechanism, but the outcome. Right, and the outcome is things are going to be more or less okay if power is imba- is balanced. And no matter what institutions you put in place, if power is not balanced, you're going to have these problems. Is that fair? Yes, I think that's right. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so the government's uh, role is going to be or should be to come in and try to balance power a little bit? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if you are an employer, uh, let's uh, let's, uh, be sympathetic to the employer situation here, right? The employers have a bunch of problems that they have got to solve from capital markets in particular now who who are empowered by changes in government, changes in regulations. Uh, and maybe initially by the way things were set up, to have enormous power over individual privately held, well, publicly held companies, that is private companies, but um, their ownership is public. Uh, and so the employers have to deal with those pressures, the pressures to perform financially and make returns, et cetera, et cetera, to deal with customers, to deal with all these other stakeholders. And at the same time, they've got to balance in some models. They've got to balance the interests of their employees. But the employees' interests are not the same as the employer's interests, and sometimes those interests are not so noble. So if you've got that situation going on, the individual employees would like to take a big chunk of what's available in terms of resources from the employers because they think that's fair. And if you're an employee, you could imagine that's going to be the case. So how do we make this thing work? We're going to give the employees more power, equalize power in that bargaining relationship, employer and employee, but then the employer has got to come up with the resources and they got all these other bargains and relationships they got to mess with and power isn't equal in those. So how does this work? Right. Well, I I really recommend that you take a look at Germany, which, by the way, has a highly talented, successful workplace, incredible productivity, robust manufacturing sector. Uh, They seem to be managing pretty well and have figured out how to balance these interests. 
Uh, and if that requires perhaps a little bit of capital constraint, um, uh, then I think that would probably be worth it. I don't see why uh, people getting paid just because they own shares, why their interests should matter more than the people who are actually doing the production. Okay. So this would require more than just uh, trying to balance relationships and power between employer and employee. It would require trying to change circumstances so the employers could survive with that kind of balance, like reducing the power that another stakeholder has, which is shareholders, right? Yep, right. So this okay. is definitely an argument for for more of a stakeholder model of the corporation yep. than one mm-hmm. that gives shareholders the dominant say. Mm-hmm. Let me get to the second uh, part of the title here, and that is why we don't talk about this issue. And just a reminder, folks, we're talking to Elizabeth Anderson from the University of Michigan professor of philosophy there. Why don't we don't why don't we talk about this? Why do we sort of just assume this is natural and okay, the way the world works. Right, because if you look at the origins of free market thinking, uh, people like Adam Smith and Tom Paine, they imagined that free markets would deliver self-employment for virtually everyone. Okay. And so under those conditions, you don't have to talk about the workplace or bosses because those people will disappear. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think what happened is that rhetoric carried through after the Industrial Revolution. People still kept talking that way, even though it didn't match reality anymore. Okay. Or even, of course, it never quite matched reality, but even after the hopes for the free market to deliver universal self-employment mm-hmm. dashed. But it sounds like this; uh, those arguments, which of course came from Europe and England, uh, somehow played out quite differently here than they did there because they've got different systems there than we got here. A story I'm sure you know about American exceptionalism, the story yes. that there's something quirky about the values and the norms in the U.S. that have prevented that. What's your sense about what those are and whether they're still playing out the same way? Yes. So I think it's really important to understand that at the time of the American Revolution, the vast majority of workers in the world were unfree laborers. Mm-hmm. If they weren't slaves, they were indentured servants right. or under or serfs or some under under some other horrible system. And in the United States, it had, at the time, an unparalleled rate of self-employment, probably historically never never seen before. Hmm. Uh, I think 90% of the free workers of the United States, of course, we're not looking at the South where they had slavery, but right. <laughs> 90% of the free workers in the United States roughly were self-employed or well on their way, where, where wage labor was just a temporary station before which they would be able to uh, you know, own their own farm or what have you. And that was due to the availability of vast tracts of land. Mm-hmm. If people didn't like their boss, they really could quit and just set up a farm somewhere a little bit west. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that lasted really, uh, you know, through through the closing of the frontier, that exit option was a real option for millions of workers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that created a mindset uh, in America that you didn't see in Europe where people felt, well, my fate is really up to me. 
if I don't like the way my boss treats me, I'll just set up shop for myself. And that really was not ever a realistic option for the vast majority of workers in Europe. But for a substantial chunk of them in the United States, that was a realistic prospect. Mm -hmm. Uh, And certainly you hear this uh, as a story about unions, right? That one of the differences in the United States and the reason unions have been weaker here historically, even at the peak period of unionization, is the story that the average American worker identified their interest not with other workers, but with the groups they aspired to be part of. So they did aspire to be business people. They did aspire to be small uh, employers and run their own operations. So they weren't that interested in getting together with their fellow workers to try to advance their interests because they were thinking they wouldn't be there forever. Um, Do you think that's changing now? Is that ideology, those values the same now, or have they started to change? Because the reality at some point begins to alter what people think, yeah? Yeah, I think that's right. And so we do see things like, you know, the rise of Bernie Sanders (laughs) among youth Mm -hmm. today. The word socialism is no longer a dirty word. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's due to the rise of inequality and the sense of insecurity that new workers are facing when they enter the job market, Mm -hmm. the sense of precariousness that they won't actually even get the secure employment that their parents or perhaps grandparents uh, were assured uh, a few decades ago. Okay. If this could be harnessed, what's your sense of what the changes would look like? So if you had to bet, and you do because we're asking you, um, about how things might change if you got this political movement rolling, what do you think people would want to see different in the workplace? I think they would just like to have more voice, and then Mm -hmm. depending on the specifics of the workplace, that would play out with different, you know, rules on the ground. Certainly those slaughterhouse workers would definitely be able to like like to have a bathroom break. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in other other workplaces, you'd have other issues. It just depends on the nature of uh, the workplace. Let me ask Dan a question, a trivia question, before we uh, break here. What do you think the number one item is that employees say they want unions for? A voice in the workplace. Grievance procedures. Yes, indeed. Very good, yeah. Dan. That's I, did it's I more con- than trivia. It's actually part of my job. Part of your job. There you go. Professor Anderson, let me ask you this. The, if I had to advance a theory on why the rules you, you advocate are not currently the law, would it go like this? Enough people perceive right or wrong that these rules would lessen the rate of return, investment return, for investors in locating jobs, uh, operations, et cetera, that it would move enough jobs – outside of U.S. soil to other nations uh, and would, in the, in the end, uh, lessen employment here in the U.S. So they're afraid to adopt these rules for fear of basically chasing off jobs. Do you think that's a, a big part of why these rules you like are not currently law? You know, I'm not so sure about that. Manufacturing can shift, but the bulk of employment these days is in services, it's harder to ship that overseas. A lot of it's in-person mm-hmm. things, you know. Could I, uh, we're maybe have it, increasing demand for health care, nursing, yeah. okay. home health care, things like that. Let me ask you Dan, Dan's question in a slightly different way, and that is, do you think that that argument is true, or is it just something that uh, enough people believe that it matters? That is, if you did this, 
if you gave workers more say and you started to prevent employers from having such arbitrary such power that it would actually hurt returns do you have a sense of that one or is you it know, just that people if you believe look it at the german system of co-determination a lot of empirical studies i've taken a look at them and they give they yield very mixed results as to whether returns have declined a positive effect of co-determination is that workers are more motivated to work hard because they feel respected at work. Mm-hmm. It's hard to know, you know, how to balance those those factors. Yeah. And, of course, the interesting thing is, you know, who put that system in place in Germany? Who's that? Uh, the Allies, and particularly UK, uh, after the Second World War. Oh, interesting. Imposed. It's not that Germany came up with this itself, right? Uh, Elizabeth, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks very much for being with us here, and good luck with the book. Elizabeth Anderson is Professor of Philosophy and Women's Studies at the University of Michigan. The book is Private Government, How Employers Rule Our Lives and Why We Don't Talk About It. We're going to take a break here and consider the arbitrary power that our producer has over us, and we will be right back with you in just a minute. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.